Welcome to episode 5 of Flying Podcast. By way of a slight departure, today's episode covers a visit to Yorkshire Air Museum at Elvington Airfield near York. Let's get straight into the interview with Ian Reid, uh, who is the director at Yorkshire Air Museum. Okay, I'm with uh, Ian Reid at Yorkshire Air Museum. Good afternoon, Ian. Good afternoon. Uh, to start with, could you uh, give us a little background? What is the Air Museum all about? Well, the Yorkshire Air Museum and Allied Air Forces Memorial, to give it its full title, was formed uh, in the early 80s um, by a, a group of uh, enthusiasts, and, and not necessarily aircraft enthusiasts, but people who were more interested in preserving the memorial aspect. Um, there were oh, almost 40 airfields around York with the two bomber command groups that were based around here. Um, and by the, by the 80s, most of them had disappeared, and I, and I think there was a growing number of people who were frightened that that little piece of history would be left or obscured you know, very quickly, and, and it certainly proved to be that case. Um, the story goes that uh, our founding chairman, who was a, a lady uh, who lived nearby, was wandering through the ruined buildings of the former bomber command station here at Elvington, um, and it was a very foggy day, and through the fog walked um, several men dressed in wartime aviation uniform. Yeah. And uh, this took her a bit by surprise, and she inquired, and it was, uh, it was a French film company right. doing a film about the French being based here during the Second World War. And I think, I think that really triggered it all off, and uh, from that, uh, uh, the seeds of what is today the largest independent air museum in Britain uh, and the only Allied Air Forces memorial in Europe. Right. So 20-odd years on, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a nice, nice feeling. The, the, the heart of the museum is certainly the memorial. And, and I think unusually in, in most in museums in this country and abroad, having a, the heart of it being a, a well-established um, and well-known memorial gives us a feeling of purpose in a way that perhaps a lot of museums don't tend to have. They're either enthusiastically driven around one um, certain aspect of the museum and, and, and that's it. This has got a, a very diverse um, um, uh, interest around here and which is focused on the memorial. A lot of interest from France and also from the Commonwealth. I mean, people forget, don't they, how reliant we were on Commonwealth airmen. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think particularly uh, the fact that the Canadians were based uh, at Sixth Group, which was just the other side of York, and of course uh, there were Australians and Belgians uh, and French, of course, uh, uh, quite a diverse range of nationalities around here. Uh, and I think that aspect wanted to be remembered, really. Our memorial garden was opened by uh, Group Captain Leonard Cheshire, uh, early in the 80s, and, and is the focus of uh, an awful lot of uh, memorial activities, uh, even today. And of course, you know, the, the Gulf War and Afghanistan, and, and all that's, that's coming to the fore as well. So on our special days, we, we can get up to 30 nationalities being represented here, which is quite something. Okay. Uh, you mentioned we're near York. We are actually just to the south of York, aren't we? Just off the A64? No, due east, uh, within the boundaries of the city of York, actually. Uh, so we're actually a, a York uh, organisation, although we're not in the city walls, of course, but with a runway of almost two miles long, you know, you, you've got to be that far away anyway. At, right at the end of the runway, right at the end is uh, York University. Um, and the, the original um, um, 
Elizabethan uh, manor house, which is Heslington Hall, which is the centre of your university, that was for Group Bomber Command during the war. So it's a really good, okay. uh, really good connection that way. We have three serving chaplains here, and the and the perimeter, the old, the original perimeter track runs right through the centre of the site. The site that we have is over 20 acres, um, and expanding. It's uh, uh, we've got a lot of space here. But the perimeter track runs through the centre, and the eastern side of the perimeter track is the original wartime buildings. And uh, I understand that we're the largest um, uh, original bomber command station now open to the public. Um, so all the buildings uh, are as they were. Uh, and of course it was the only site where the two French heavy bomber squadrons flew from. Um, in 2004... We uh, painted our Halifax bomber on one side in French colours to represent the 60th anniversary of the French going back to their homeland. And uh, we, t we sent a picture of this to President Chirac, who uh, responded very, very nicely by telling us the picture was in the Elysee Palace and that, uh, and that they do appreciate that the foundations of the modern French Air Force um, were, are here at Elvington. At the French Air Force Memorial at Grand Cormaisy on the Normandy coast, the French Air Memorial is a reproduction of the one here at Elvington and is actually pointed towards Elvington. Um, uh, the French veterans, uh, Les Amicables, the group uh, load, which uh, work with us as well, um, they're, they're a very strong and very well-represented group in France because they represent a, a section of the... Uh, um, French veterans who fought throughout the Second World War. The two French squadrons that were based here are, are always very uh, um, keen to point out that they weren't free French. They never surrendered. They, they, they got into North Africa and came back to Britain and carried on the fight continuously. Um, and some of them were very young indeed. I know one of them who was a rear gunner in Halifax and he was 14 years old. Yeah. So... Um, uh, they're still very much about, and uh, because they had um, um, wartime history, of course, there, there were, I suppose there were few few people in France after the war that had had a full, competent history. Um, many of them became, quite a few became marshals of France, and many of them became generals and senior officers in the French armed forces post-war, and carried their experiences here from Elvington with them. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very well thought of. Uh, like a lot of things in life, the further you are, the more people know about you. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, the, the museum and the aircraft here, what would you say is the importance of preserving the, the history of airfields like this and, and the aircraft based here? Well, uh, I mean, I, I was born in the 50s and, and, I, and I remember all the workmen used to wear the, the leather jerkins and all the vehicles were post-war vehicles. And, and, I, and I think a generation that had lived with all this around them, they just used them until they fell apart. And mm -hmm. it's the old thing about familiarity breeds contempt. And suddenly you wake up and there isn't anything left, you know. Um, I know we, we had a huge military vehicle show here. I, I think it's the biggest in the north now. Uh, with uh, almost 250 historic vehicles, and uh, there are more, there are more British ones being being preserved now than there was 20 years ago because people couldn't find them; they were all rotten and thrown away. Yeah. They tended to be all American that came out of impounded stocks. So, uh, rediscovering the the British 
history of the Second World War has, yeah. has, has been taken quite some time to do. Um, it's the same with the uh, nuclear age, of course. I mean, uh, uh, luckily there are preservation groups suddenly realising that all the bunkers were destroyed and, and there's a whole section of, of, uh, of history, particularly in this country, and fantastic work done mm -hmm. um, uh, in defence of the Cold War that virtually nobody knows about. Yep. Uh, we put on display uh, an H-bomb uh, public display, which... Uh, we, we wondered whether there would be a bit of controversy about it, but it was one of the first H-bombs put on public display anywhere, uh, and we had crowds of people just coming to touch it and say, <laughs> yeah. this is what we, this is the, the threat that we were under for mm. 30 years, but we never actually knew what one was like. Yeah. I think the same had happened in the, in the First World War. I know in the 20s, uh, First World War tanks were put on, on uh, beachfronts, and people used to say, this is what it was really like, yeah. you know? I suppose it's somehow facing up to the fears in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, could you sort of give me a, a talk through some of the aircraft you have here? There's, there's quite a few, aren't there? What, how, would, how many are there altogether? About 50. Just, uh, just, I think it's just about 50 now. Um, as I said to you before, the, the perimeter track splits the museum, really. Uh, this side, the, the, the preservation area is the Second World War area, if you like. But the perimeter track beyond is the history of aviation. We aren't necessarily a Second, war muse, uh, Second World War museum. In fact, come the millennium, we wondered realistically how long the Second World War would have in, in public interest. Mm -hmm. um, I think with the 60th anniversaries, of course, that was given a huge boost. And we followed that trend. But back, way back in the 90s, we were already preparing to, to change the aspect of the museum should the, the, the interest wane. But... Um, we, we do have two clear strands. One is as the Allied Air Forces Memorial, and that will never change. And the other one is education and the history of aviation. Now, we're also very lucky here in Yorkshire to be the home of uh, Sir George Cayley, who is known, particularly in America, as the father of aviation. And he was the first person, really, to design uh, an aircraft in the terms of fuselage wing and tailplane assembly. I think, generally speaking, prior to that, people had seen a bird make something that looked like it and mm -hmm. then launch themselves off a cliff, to put it crudely. But um, Cayley's work, particularly on lift coefficients and his mathematics, uh, was even used by the Wright brothers um, in 1902. Um, they asked for permission to use his work uh, from the Science Museum. And so... For that reason, Cayley is particularly well known in America as, as being the, the father of it. And we have the, uh, a replica of the 1853 um, glider, which uh, flew last flew back in about 1964. It actually flew, did it? Yeah. Uh, Anglia Television did a, um, a film about it, which, you know, which we show. Um, so we have that, and, and that that's, that's takes pride of place, because, of course, Cayley... Kelly got his coachman to fly just at Brompton Vale, which is about ten miles away from here. So, uh, and and some some the family is still around, and uh, um, we had the Duchess of Kent, who is a direct relative of Sir George Kelly. She came to visit us a couple of years ago, and uh, um, we're very proud of that connection, that very Yorkshire connection sure. with the early flight. And then, of course, uh, you get people like Thomas. Uh, sorry, Robert Blackburn, who started building aircraft in, in Armley in Leeds, and we have a replica of his uh, 1911 uh, 
um, monoplane which took Edwardian ladies and gentlemen for flights along Filey Sands yeah. uh, in the Edwardian era and um, um, several, several uh, biplanes, uh, First World War and, uh, and 20s. Um, you have example. a record for the right flyer here, don't you? Yes, in, uh, in 1999 uh, I managed to get a lottery bid to buy a, a right flyer, a flying right flyer. It's, uh, the, the RAF flew it at Finningley back in the 60s. Um, and we restored it and put it on display here because we had an idea that in 2003, you know, four years later, the Americans would be, would be very excited about their first major modern history centenary. And, and such was the interest that uh, we were invited by the government to to bring it to the uh, Royal International Air Tattoo at Fairford in 2003. Uh, and they sent a C-17 Globemaster here into Elvington. Um, and I think we put about four aeroplanes on board. Didn't take them to bits, actually, just put them straight on board, and they flew them down to Fairford. And we were central exhibition at Fairford. And that really put us on the map because we were, we were emerging from a major change of structure at the museum onto a more professional footing in 99. And that central central display area at Fairford, with all the other regional mu and national museums around us, um, really put us on the map, actually. Give you a boost. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 300,000 visitors a day to Fairford. Uh, it's the largest show in the world. So, but, you know, that, that was very good publicity for us. Good and, yeah, and, and we, we've gone on very much from... from uh, that way, particularly on the history of aviation, we do some of the largest education events um, in the country nowadays, and we are partners with the Royal Aeronautical Society. Um, we we published a book last year on for school children fitting in with national curriculum levels, which our educationalists helped us with locally, um, and it's a, it's a wonderful resource book, uh, and it won the. Uh, Centennial Scholarship Prize by the Royal Aeronautical Society just last November. And building on that, um, uh, we got local Yorkshire Forward funding to produce enough to go to every school in Britain, that's 20, every primary school, 24,000. Yeah. We got support from Virgin, uh, British Airways and EADS. Um, and next month, the Secretary, uh, Minister of State for Transport is going to publicly launch it for us in the centre of London, Brilliant. which shows where we've come to, from in the last mm -hmm. 20 years. You know. Excellent. Now, of course, as you said, the, this airfield, its most famous role was during the Second World War. Yeah. And uh, a fair few of your aircraft here are from that era. Yes, we, we have Dakota, uh, Halifax, uh, we have a, a Fairchild Argus, which we, we got a few years ago. Uh, we've got replicas of Spitfire, Hurricane, uh, uh, Mesh 109, uh, and of course the Mosquito here. Um, and yeah, um, to be fair, pre and post war aircraft outnumber our World War II aircraft, but we still have a, a good a good range of examples. Yeah. yeah, and post war, I think probably the the main uh, attraction you have here, or definitely the most imposing, is the Victor. That's right, yeah, uh, Lusty Lindy. Uh, we we do a, a series of Thunder Days every year, and uh, we have the the Buccaneer as well here, which uh, was a, again a Yorkshire aircraft. Uh, we have two Buccaneers, uh, and we take 
one one down the runway, flat out, and and certainly the victor certainly makes the ground move for an awful lot of people, and it's uh, um, it's very popular. Uh, I mean, in order to do this, of course, we we we've had to diversify. We have a fully operational fire service, airfield fire service, um, which again some people raised their eyebrows at an air, a, a museum having a fire service, but during the York floods we were responsible for an area of York with 2,000 people. We, we, uh, we had three engines and pumping three, four days continuously, uh, and then we went on to help out the RAF who were uh, working on Selby being flooded. And then during the fire strike, uh, the whole of York, from the York Minster due east, all the city, uh, was run by the Yorkshire Air Museum. And, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I think when people think that it's a fire brigade from a museum that will turn up with horse-drawn stuff, but we have all the latest stuff. So, yeah. Are any of the aircraft airworthy? You say that the, the right flag does actually fly. Um, any of the yes, I, I, like, uh, like a lot of people in the know, they'll know that uh, airframe-wise and probably mechanically uh, mm. you could run them and pull the stick back and... And uh, and take off, but as uh, as one of my pilots says, that he would pull the stick back with your hands together, and then when he got out of the aircraft, he'd keep them there because somebody would put handcuffs on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between taxiing and keeping aircraft at uh, taxiing level, in terms of insurance and CAA approval, um, the difference between that and flight are chalk and cheese. You're talking millions of pounds mm-hmm. difference. Uh, and and some of these aircraft are quite historic and quite valuable, and and I think as long as people can touch them, smell them, see them, see them running where we can and, and moving about, nothing static here. The aircraft are moved all the time, um, and they're worked on all the time. So it's not a dead a museum of dead exhibits by any any. Can you actually go in any of the aircraft? Yes, quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, you can go in the Halifax, the Dakota, the Canberra, uh, Mirage, Harrier. Uh, so these are uncertain days, of course, but there are some aircraft where you can get in virtually any any day. Um, but certainly, doing our special events, you can get in uh, get in most of them. We we do special events for children and for school children, and, and they love getting inside the Harrier. I'm sure. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, it's, some of the aircraft, of course, you you can't get. I like the Mirage Three. That's the only one in Britain. And uh, um, yeah, we, we we do do special special events around those. Okay. I was just uh, thinking to myself, how do you go about sourcing new aircraft for the exhibition? Well, it varies really. Uh, Obviously, if we get an opportunity to get something that's interesting. um, I think that one of the last aircraft we got was uh, the Fairy Gannet, which uh, it's a bumblebee really. You've got to see it to believe it. And it's a very interesting aircraft with... Uh, twin jet turbines and contra-rotating propellers and it's just anything fleet air arm is tonker size compared to anything it's just so much bigger Mm -hmm. Um, you know you need a full scale ladder to get into the cockpit Uh, that's wonderful aircraft is that the uh, folding wings? that's right double folding wings and uh, um, that came up for sale uh, in Doncaster and uh, I managed to get some grant aid for it uh, and we managed to save it and we're working on putting that back uh, get the engines running hopefully very shortly all the avionics work and, and the hydraulics work again but it was stood for five or six years and, and they, they don't do for standing unfortunately we're looking to repaint it this year and uh, um, we're obviously taking an extraordinary amount of care we're not going to put something into into motion until it's been 
quadruple checked over mm -hmm. and, and every, all the all the working services checked over. So okay. uh, uh, it it does take. It's frustrating sometimes, particularly if you spent a lot of time uh, getting money and donations in order to buy something and then, you know, two or three years pass before a propeller turns. But, sure. you know, these propellers, they, uh, even on tick-over, they're, they're almost at the speed of sound and uh, you can't have blade tips flying off into the crowd. You've got, <laughs> you've got to make sure that it's absolutely 100%. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure anybody who's aware of the, the incredible... Uh, um, time, resource and, and, and hard work that's been put into the Vulcan over many, many years, you can see that uh, even even just getting aircraft for public display takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. Okay. So, so that's pretty good. But in terms of the preservation, do you do uh, everything here or do you subcontract things out? No, we have a, a full workshop facility. We have 38 aircraft engineers within the aircraft engineering department. Um, and they're restoring everything. We're just doing th doing a, a series of uh, uh, fabric aircraft at the moment. We have about five fabric programs on at the moment, uh, so we tend to concentrate on that um, um, because we're, look, we're dealing with dope and and, uh, and and fabric, obviously. So it's it's best to set the workshop out off for that sort of work rather than continue to do different things. But uh, the, our javelin is just back. Uh, um, the RAF help us out occasionally. They uh, they painted our uh, Gloucester Javelin recently at RAF Leeming, and that's just come back after a, about a three-year uh, away game. It stayed over in Leeming because of the uh, um, uh, stand-down of 11 Squadron. It was 11 Squadron colours, so we left it there for their ceremony, and it's come back, and it wants some metal work doing to it, so that's, that's another job. It never ends, of course, yeah, sure. but... Um, um, so we have a we have a restoration department. We have an operational side as well to the aircraft side, um, uh, and and we have a an operational maintenance side as well, who who basically display maintenance, keep them in good condition. If you saw BBC Question Time in November, you will have got some good pictures, I think, because the BBC did a tremendous job at flood lighting. They had tons of lighting on board up in the hangars to flood light the aircraft around the the audience and, and panel so uh, we try to have we've got to look, have them displayed but we also have to have them operationally uh, okay. up to standard <coughs> uh, in addition to the aircraft you have other uh, exhibits and displays don't you particularly uh, things like gunnery exhibition you have a uniforms exhibition anything else we should know about yeah we have 15 exhibitions uh, the latest one was opened uh, in March by Sir David Jason uh, which is the history of Bomber Command. Uh, we felt this is the, probably the most appropriate place in Britain for it to be, being the home of the Allied Air Forces Memorial and the Bomber Base, uh, particularly with the Halifax bomber sat there in the, uh, in the hangar. Um, it's a, it was a, ma it's a major national exhibition. It's a, it's, uh, people perhaps look at the building because it's a wartime building and you think, oh, what's well, a, a sort of a long shed, but you go in and it's a bit like a TARDIS, really. It's all brand new inside, uh, sectioned um, Hercules and Merlin engines, uh, searchlights, uh, huge artefacts in there. There's also a 1930s theatre fully fitted out uh, with the original film. Um, one, of the, one of the great things that the French left us with was a 25-minute a film about it was the French Air Force during the Second World War, and it was all filmed here. 
uh, and all the buildings, so we were able to do it exactly as it was. And this is quite quite rare for a museum to have an authentic film of it actually being used in operational times. You fly out in your Halifaxes with them, bomb Leipzig, and fly back to Elvington as well. And uh, it's a very moving film, and uh, and quite quite a, a historic uh, uh, film as well, mm -hmm. which which. which shows exactly what it was and tends to bring people a bit down to earth really about what happened in these these buildings which were targets of course i mean one of the last uh, german aircraft to crash uh, on on british soil was just here uh, just outside the museum when they were trying to shoot down returning french bombers and one yunkers 88 clipped a building and plowed into a farmhouse just here um, and there's a yunkers 88 propeller there in the middle of bent and twisted, you know, which gives a perfect idea of what happened. Okay. Uh, if somebody wants to uh, come here, uh, it's open every day of the week? Absolutely, yeah. We have a membership. It isn't an association. We're a, we're a registered charity and we're a registered national museum, only number 66 in the country. Um, so in, uh, to, to all intents and purposes, our collection is, is part of the national collection. So uh, there are a lot of museums and, and attractions that are privately owned, but this is actually belongs uh, to the National Collection, although, although we're a private charity. Uh, but we have a membership, um, and for £15 a year you get uh, uh, the special days and um, uh, you get a magazine and you, you, get, it, you get to be part of the, the, the museum fabric. Uh, there's 149 employees here. Um, doing all sorts of work from uh, um, we have we've just we, we have an environmental area a four acre environmental area with uh, lakes woodland walks and we've set up a butterfly conservancy and that's flight you see of course um, one of the first areas in the world to be surveyed was was done by the uh, uh, rector of Weldrake which is the next village in in about in the 1830s and so the butterfly conservation Conservancy of Britain were very anxious to set up a, another one 170 years on. It shows the differences in environmental mm -hmm. areas. We, we have a, we're an environmentally self-sustaining museum. The DEFRA has helped us put a waste management system into our catering department. Um, all the site vehicles, of which is 11, run on uh, uh, reconstituted chip oil from the restaurant. <laughs> we have one of the largest restaurants in the New York area. We can cater for up to 2,000 people. As a consequence, we, we do large international events like Rotary. Bentley cars come here very regularly. We do university balls, things like that. So there's a huge amount of activities on site. At, at national level, we get the top bands and things like that uh, on summer evenings. But we also do uh, uh, concerts, Royal Marines, things like that come, come here. Uh, we have a lot, very huge archive, an internationally renowned archive, and we have uh, nine archivists who are working continuously with the amount of uh, stuff in. Um, I mean, yes, you, you mentioned uniforms. We have the most complete collection of uh, Second World War uh, Air Force uniforms anywhere in the world now, uh, with the addition of some very rare ones only in the last two years. We've been told that it's, it's the most complete. Uh, but in terms of uniforms, I think we've got in the region of 4,000 uniforms, uh, an extensive library, specialist technical library, 
uh, and archives collection that is quite huge. And you will actually research the archives on behalf of people if they've got any interest in... Yes, uh, people can ring us up or email us. We've got a, a, a fairly good website, uh, which just won another award. And, uh, yeah, through that service uh, we, can, we can do archives or, or we, can, we can show you where to find the information that you're looking for. Um, and, and our main business, uh, in, a, in order to survive, of course, is corporate business. So we, we have an awful lot of companies who, uh, who use our corporate facilities for training, for presentations, particularly companies like Jaguar, like, like Bentley, you know, have a certain classic nuance to them. Mm. It's a perfect setting for things like that. Yeah. And, and we, we, we like them to come because we, we do a lot of classic car events, uh, lot of 1930s, 40s stuff like that, and it it all it all all fits to the ambience of the place really. You know? Your runway is huge, isn't it? I think the Americans built that did they, after the war. Yeah, they extended the the uh, runway and they put a concrete pan which at just under 50 acres, I think, is one of the largest in the country, and it's huge. Why it put a town. Do, you, do you need such a huge concrete pan? Well, what happened, of course, in the 50s, the American Air Force was competing with the U.S. Navy to be the carrier of the nuclear deterrent. And uh, like in this country, the American Air Force were going to go on a V-bomber approach with B-36s. Mm -hmm. um, and Elvington was going to be the base where all the B-36s were going to be stationed. There's a four-foot stainless steel pipeline from here to Gould Docks to, to feed them with fuel. And the runway was extended to 10,000 feet uh, and widened considerably, and it's 14 and a half feet thick at the top end. Uh, and having done all this work, uh, even bringing the first bowling alley to Britain, to the village of Elvington, um, they must have expended millions. And just after they'd done it, the, the Navy got Polaris, and the Air Force that lost the nuclear So it was facility. never used? So it was never used. Wow. Uh, the RAF brought it, took it back, of course, uh, and the Buccaneer was developed here by British Aerospace at Bruff, who were great supporters of us. They, uh, they help us a lot. In fact, they, they, they've just given us two prototype tornadoes um, recently, and uh, they're, they're very popular here. Um, and the RF used it until 1992, and then it became hardly used at all. We used it a lot. It was uh, held by the Ministry of Defence and then sold privately. Is it an active... Yeah, it's fairly active, yeah. Um, uh, in terms of um, certified, it's, it's certainly not certified. I suppose as, as far as uh, um, normal aviation is concerned, it's considered by the CAA as a, a ploughed field. But mm -hmm. it does get pretty, uh, quite a lot of private use. And, and only this weekend, they've been training for the um, uh, International uh, Aerobatics Championship. So we've had some incredible flying over the weekend. You know, 10, 12 different uh, stunt planes doing wonderful air displays. Yeah. So it does get fairly regular use in the summer. And, and it gets racing as well. Um, no one will forget uh, Richard Hammond trying to kill himself at the oh, end of the runway. That was here, was it? That was here. And, uh, and certainly the, the um, jet car that he used, uh, Colin Fallon, had taken the European uh, um, um, speed championship here uh, with it about five or six years earlier it was on display in the museum itself so um, Elvington has uh, I understand has more speed record attempts than anywhere else certainly in Britain I didn't realise that um, and uh, yeah you get everybody from jet motorcycles to jet bicycles to 
you know, all, all sorts of world record attempts. And you've got the fire brigade on hand just in case. And we've got the fire brigade to, <laughs> to, to fill them with uh, 6,000 gallons of foam in one minute. Wow. <laughs> and I believe also the shuttle could land here as well, is that the case? Well, yeah, I mean, um, the A747 did uh, appear very much in the early days with a shuttle on its back, the old pickerback, to test it. And, and it always was um, thought that it would be an ob obvious place should it have to come down in in Britain, but I understand the official one could be is possibly in Spain. Uh, I haven't heard much of that story since, but okay. at the end of the day, it's it's 400 acres is the is the runway. It's the only runway in Britain where if you take a straight line through it, there's no centres of population from sea to sea. Mm -hmm. So it's a very safe place to come down in yeah. with something that you you've got a lot of control over. I'd imagine. Sure. Well, that's brilliant. That's uh, everything I need to know. I think. Right. Thank you very much, Ian. That's all right. It's a great pleasure. Thanks to Ian for generously giving up his time to do that interview. I can thoroughly recommend a day out at Elvington, and it probably will need a full day. Uh, the guided tour itself takes four hours, I believe. Uh, there's plenty to see, uh, I'm sure that all the family will find the visit very interesting. You can just wander around looking at the aircraft, or take time to study the hundreds of photos, documents and other exhibits getting a flavour of exactly what life was like on a World War II bomber base. If you'd like more information about the museum, visit their website, which is www.yorkshireairmuseum.co.uk. That's www.yorkshireairmuseum.co.uk. So that's it for another episode. If you have any suggestions for subjects or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, please feel free to drop me a line. You can contact me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing from you and speak to you again soon.